Uh, this Dharma talk for Tuesday, the 12th of April 2022, is going to be on uh, case number three in the Blue Cliff Record Sun Faced Buddha, Moon Faced Buddha. And I'm dedicating this talk to the memory of uh, Robert Aiken Roshi, who died at the age of 93 on August the 5th, 2010. And there'll be several death dates that I'll be reading out during this talk. Um, Aiken Roshi founded the Diamond Sangha in 1959. I think it's probably the earliest American Zen community, the foundation of uh, seven years before the Rochester Zen Center. And he founded the Diamond Sangha with his wife, Anne Aitken. He and Roshi Kaplo, both Dharma heirs of Yasutani Roshi, are the, the grandfathers of American Zen. They were physically far apart, Robert Aiken based in Hawaii, and Philip Kaplo in Rochester, upstate New York. And they were also very different in temperament. I don't think Aiken Roshi ever visited the Rochester Zen Center, while Roshi Kaplo never met Aiken Roshi in Honolulu. Um, they sort of kept to their own turf, so to speak, and were a little bit prickly towards each other. That being said, they were both uh, great vessels of the Dharma. I met um, Aiken Roshi in the 1990s on a stopover at Honolulu on my way to Rochester. We had, a, we had a, a little interview and I told him how much I appreciated his recently published book, The Gateless Barrier, which comprised his commentaries on the Mumon Khan. And he mentioned that he was working on a, a follow-up volume on the Blue Cliff Record. Unfortunately, uh, that book has never seen the light of day. However, uh, just the other day, and this is really the, um, the spur to this talk, just the other day I was listening to his tape Tay show on case three in the Blue Cliff Record, our case for this evening. Out of the speaker came his distinctive voice, dry and succinct. And in our sitting room, Aitken Roshi was very much alive. Okay, now to the, um, the Blue Cliff Record, the Hekiganroku in Japanese. It was compiled by Shui Do, and his dates are 980 to 1052 a great teacher in Tang Dynasty, China. He compiled the 100 cases of the Blue Cliff Record, and he wrote a verse for each case. And then another Zen master, Yuan Wu, 1063 to 1153, provided an introduction to each koan, plus commentaries on the main case and the verse. And he also made pithy remarks at certain points in the text. So the Blue Cliff Record is a very layered uh, 
collection of koans. There's a lot going on, and like a to and forth between these two great Chinese Zen teachers. In contrast to the Mumon Khan, uh, where you just get one voice, the voice of Master Mumon, who compiled the Mumon Khan. And Master Mumon is uh, a lot more straightforward. But the Blue Cliff Record is a different kettle of fish. As I said, more layered, a little bit more poetic at times. A lot going on. So what I'll do, I'll just read the introduction, the main case, and the verse, and then comment on them. So this is the introduction by Yuan Wu. One device, one object, one word, one phrase. The intent is that you'll have a place to enter. Still, this is gouging out a wound in healthy flesh. It can become a nest. It can become a den. The great work operates without abiding in fixed principles. The intent is to show something transcendent, covering the earth, covering the sky. It cannot be grasped. This way will do. Not this way will do. Much too scrupulous. Not this way will do. Not this way will not do. Much too precipitous. Not treading these two paths. What would be right? I set this example as a test for you. And in the case, Great Master Ma was unwell. The temple superintendent asked him, Teacher, how has your health been in recent days? The great master said, Oh, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. That's the case. And then the verse by Shui Do. Sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha, who were the five emperors and the three sovereigns after all? For twenty years I have suffered. How many times have I gone down into the blue dragon's cave for you? This distress is worth recounting. Clear-eyed Zen students should not take it lightly. So the master in our case is... Matsu Dao Yi, and his dates are 709 to 788. And so he lived in the early Tang Dynasty, the golden age of Zen. He was born in Hangchao in Sichuan province, near the border with Tibet. He was the Dharma heir of Nanyue Huairang, Nangaku in Japanese, which made him the grandson of Huainang the great Huainang, the sixth ancestor of Zen. When Nanyue was about to become a teacher, Huainang said to him, Among those in your assembly, there will be a great horse who will trample heaven and earth. Ma in Chinese means horse, so this prophecy refers to Ma Tzu, Mr. Horse. After Nanyue became a teacher 
and established his own temple. It was reported that one of the monks was sitting day and night in Zazen, sitting around the clock. Realizing that this monk had potential, the master went to him and asked, What do you expect by sitting in meditation, venerable monk? Tao Yi, who would later become Matsu, replied, I am trying to become a Buddha. The master picked up a roof tile lying nearby and began rubbing it with a rock. Tai asked, What do you wish to achieve by rubbing that tile? The master replied, I am trying to make a mirror out of this piece of tile. Tai asked, How can you make a mirror by rubbing a tile? The master responded, How can you become a Buddha by sitting in meditation? Tao Yi asked, oh, Then how should I proceed? The master explained, It is like riding in an ox cart. If the cart will not move forward, which should be beaten, the cart or the ox? He went on for some time, and it is said that Tao Yi drank in his words like ambrosia, and came to an awakening. Now, this point of this monk, who would like to become a great, great Zen master, sitting day and night, and then Nanwei asks him, what do you expect by sitting in meditation, venerable monk? And Tao Yi replied, I'm trying to become a Buddha. This, um, this incident has been sort of uh, wrongly depicted by Alan Watts early in the history of Zen as saying, oh, you don't need to do Zazen. Look at this case. This guy's sitting in Zazen day and night and the master asks him what he's trying to do. And Tai replies, I'm trying to become a Buddha. Of course. He's already a Buddha. But this is not to say that in any way that all that Zazen was wrong. In fact, it's the effort that this monk was making day and night that led him to his realization. It's just that he was attached to sitting. He was attached to this concept of becoming a Buddha, which is just a concept. So he had to let that go. He had to let go of, of um, just grinding out his zazen. And this is what Nanyue showed him by grinding, grinding uh, the tile. It's not just grinding effort. It's much more than that. It's letting go of all attachments, letting go of everything. And after that, after that, his awakening, after this dialogue, Matsu went on to become a Zen teacher, the descendant of Nanyue. He was the first Zen teacher to use his staff, his stick, to jolt students into awakening. And he had a, a, a formidable physical presence 
It is said that he strode like an ox and glared like a tiger. His tongue, when extended, covered his nose. <laughs> it was so long. I think of that guy from Kiss, the lead singer of Kiss. On one occasion, he gave such a loud shout that he deafened his disciple Bai Zhang for three days. So really formidable teacher. And it is said that he had 84 enlightened Dharma successors. 84. You have to put that in context. Bodhidharma, the founder of Zen, only had one disciple, Hui Ke. He cut off his arm. And Hui Ke only had one disciple as well, Sin Shang. And then he only had one or two disciples. So Zen started out very slowly. Fourth, fourth ancestor, fifth ancestor. Uh, um, Hui Neng, the sixth ancestor, only had two or three disciples. And Nan Yue, Matsu's teacher, had four. And of those four, only Matsu was really exceptional. And then with Matsu, he had 84 enlightened Dharma successors. So at that point, there was an incredible flourishing of Zen in China. So this makes Matsu a very important teacher. He sowed a lot of seeds. With this koan, um, Aiken Roshi says of sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha, it's one of the best known and most widely misunderstood koans in Zen. A lot of commentaries have been on this koan, even uh, in Yuan Wu's time, that are off the point. Some early commentators said, oh, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha, uh, the sun is the left eye, or the right eye, then the moon is the left eye. <laughs> Not that at all. Others thought that it meant, oh, he's actually saying, get me some medicine. But that's beside the point. It's not to do with that at all. Neither is it to do with impermanence. That doesn't reach it. Let's take a look at the introduction. One device, one object, one word, one phrase. The intent is that you'll have a place to enter. Zen teachers are always um, presenting a place to enter. Uh, Rinzai would give a shout, Ka! Um, Taishan would give a blow. Um, Gute would ra raise one finger. Uh, those are all places to enter. And they uh, were triggers for students' enlightenment. However, if you... If you um, if you cling to this shout or, or try to reproduce um, hitting with a stick or raising a finger, then it's just copying a master. It's gouging out a wound in healthy flesh. And it can become a nest. It, become, it can become a den. Yuan Wu continues in his introduction, the great work operates without abiding in fixed principles without abiding in fixed principles. Um, no laws, nothing fixed. 
The intent is to show something transcendent, covering the earth, covering the sky. It cannot be grasped. This way will do, not this way will do. Much too scrupulous. Not this way will do, not this way will not do. Much too precipitous. Treading these two paths, what would be right? Really, he's just saying is abandon all duality. It's not silence, it's not words. Then what is it? It's not affirming, it's not negating. Then what is it? And then he says, I cite this example as a test for you. So how to go beyond birth and death, how to go beyond right and wrong, how to go beyond all duality. And the case goes, Great Master Ma was unwell. The temple superintendent asked him, Hmm, teacher, how has your health been in recent days? The great master said, Sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. And for this koan, you need to know that in the Sutra of the Names of the Buddha, it says that Sun-faced Buddha lives for 1,800 years, while Moon-faced Buddha lives for a day and a night. Very different. Instead of Sun-faced Buddha, Moon-faced Buddha, you could say Pine Tree Buddha, Fruit Fly Buddha. In um, Asian thought, pine tree was said to, to last for over a thousand years, and a fruit fly only lasts for a day or so. These words, the last recorded words in Matsu, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha, brought into focus his, his lifetime of effort, of zazen, of teaching, and they are a wonderful expression of the, of the Buddha Dharma. Note how the superintendent was angling for a final teaching when he asked, how has your health been these days? Matsu must have been very ill at the time because he died the next day. And remember, he was this, such a vigorous teacher compared to a, an ox in, in walking and a tiger with flashing eyes. So it's particularly poignant that in the end, this robust, who was once a robust teacher, just said very quietly, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. Um, working on koans uh, has a way of exposing a student's weak points, their personal preoccupations, the places where they can get stuck. And I got stuck on sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha, for quite a while. I was caught up in its cosmology and in its poetics. Doxan after doxan, I, I would present a literary response to the koan, and I'd be wrung out. 
I can't really remember what I said, but I think at one point I, I quoted lines of poetry and that was no good. Ding-a-ling-a-ling. And I came up with something else and then ding-a-ling-a-ling. That was my way of misunderstanding this koan. Going for the beautiful, for the poetic. And it made a deep impression on me when I finally saw into what was going on. Then we come to the verse. Sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha, who were the ancient emperors after all? The other translation of that is, who were the five emperors and the three sovereigns after all? Shwedo is uh, saying here, those ancient emperors and sovereigns uh, at the very start of Chinese history, they were just they were just like us. They really boiled they were just like us. Whole and complete, lacking nothing. Then he gets personal. Yuan Wu gets personal. Sorry, Shredo gets personal. For twenty years I have suffered. How many times I have have I gone down into the blue dragon's cave for you? Shredo is speaking directly of his own efforts of decades of intense zazen, working through discouragement, failure, uncertainty is going into the blue dragon's cave. You think of blue, the color of uh, melancholy, if you like, uh, depression. In mythology, it is said that the dragon keeps a wish-fulfilling jewel, a pearl of great price in the depths of the ocean, hidden in a cave. And Shwedo goes down into this cave, not just for his own sake, but for the sake of all beings. For 20 years I have suffered. How many times have I gone down into the blue dragon's cave for you? No matter what discouragement we encounter in our zazen, no matter what self-doubts afflict us, we must keep on practicing, realizing that such states come and go. They're not who we truly are. This is the way to wrest the pearl of great price from the dragon's talons. And then the verse ends, clear-eyed Zen students should not take it lightly, should not take their efforts lightly, should not take the teachings lightly, should not take the practice lightly. Aiken Roshi stated, Zen is not a hobby. That's an important point. Zen is not a hobby. Zen practice is a direct inquiry into the great matter of birth and death. And our koan for this evening points the way. In his commentary, Yuan Wu says, this sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha, is extremely difficult to see. 
Even if you practiced long and developed deep insight, he says, you still must not take it lightly. You must be thoroughgoing. You must be thoroughgoing in your practice. For the second part of um, my talk, I'd like to look at some death accounts in Zen, some uh, history of, of Zen teachers who are at, at the point of death. Um, and these, these can be very instructive. Really, um, birth and death, is, they're the bread and butter of Zen students. Um, you can never tire of um, bringing up um, Bringing up death uh, is something that we'll all face uh, sooner or later. But I'd like to start with, uh, with a personal account. Uh, my father died suddenly of an aneurysm on May the 9th, 1997. He was 74. Since and I were in Rochester at the time, and I returned to New Zealand for the funeral. And his oldest friend, Tony Woods, told me about my father's last visit to his house in Myringi Bay a week before he died. My father had difficulty climbing the stairs and appeared flushed. Tony asked him, oh, Paul, how are you feeling? And my father replied, Oh, about 60%. Um, that was a, a fine response. My father had no interest in Zen, really, but that was a good Zen response. Oh, about 60%. 40% gone. 60% soon to go. Um, there's a, a great book by... Yoel Hoffman, Japanese Death Poems, and um, Sensei and I have often, uh, well, sometimes we've read verses or um, accounts from, from this book. Uh, it's an anthology of verses written by Zen masters and haiku poets on the verge of death. Here's just one example from this collection. Japanese Zen master Takuan died at the age of 73 on December the 11th, 1645. Lying in bed, at first he refused to write a death poem. At last he gave in to the entreaties of those surrounding him, took up his brush and drew the character for dream, which is yume in Japanese. When he finished, he threw the brush down and died. Uh, Takwan was a formidable medieval Japanese Zen teacher. He was the teacher to many samurais, many samurai warriors. Uh, and yet he did this lovely calligraphy at the end, dream and passed away. 
Although you can, you can see something of his samurai spirit in the way he threw down his brush after writing Dream, you may. And um, uh, savor this teaching, this final teaching, Dream. It's to be savored. Uh, I was thinking, uh, I'm now 65. 20 years ago, I was 45. <laughs> Those 20 years have passed in a dream. Uh, I spent 12 years, just over 12 years, in Rochester at the Rochester Zen Center. Those years have passed in a dream. Then we came back to New Zealand in 2004, and I worked for 13 years at the Ministry of Education. And now those years have gone. Like dream. So when, you know, when we're very old, we can look back on our life and, yes, it'll be like a dream. Another account, um, D.T. Suzuki died at the age of 95 on July the 12th, 1966. Of course, D.T. Suzuki was uh, really instrumental in introducing Zen to the West. So he died at the age of, venerable age of 95. His friends were gathered around his bed and he uttered his final words. Ah, it's all right. Thank you. Probably arigato in Japanese. So that was his final words. It's all right. Thank you. Uh, and these words were addressed not just to his friends, but to the universe. Thank you. Sinichi Hizamatsu, uh, an old friend and colleague of D.T. Suzuki, reports that on September of that year, 1966, on the midday of Sishin, a solemn memorial service was held for D.T. Suzuki at Myoshinji, the, the main Rinzai temple in Kyoto. On this occasion, I gave out a cry and held a last mondo dharma dialogue with D.T. Suzuki. Ah, this one who hurts. Are you suffering? Ah, it's all right. Thank you. That was um, Hisamatsu's dialogue. Another one, this time a, a Chinese master from the Tang Dynasty. During the last illness of Dei Shan, Toksan in Japanese, a monk asked him, is there someone who is not ill? Is there someone who is not ill? Dei Shan said, yes, there is. The monk asked, tell me about this one who is not ill. Dei Shan yelled, ah! 
And that was his teaching. Although it's, may, we may not like to contemplate our own death, uh, what is true is that we don't know how we'll go. Uh, our life might be over in a flash, in a snap, like my dad's, or our death may be painful and prolonged. We don't know. There are many ways, many ways to die. Now the painful one. Shunryu Suzuki Roshi died at the age of 67 on December the 4th, 1971. Another Suzuki, but uh, Shunryu Suzuki was the um, great Soto teacher who founded the San Francisco Zen Center. And his book, his famous book is Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And with uh, the three pillars of Zen, Roshi Kaplow's book, uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, uh, introduced many, many students to Zen. It's a real foundational book for Zen in the West with the three pillars of Zen. Anyway, his disciple, Baker Roshi, tells of his last interview with Suzuki Roshi. Uh, Suzuki Roshi was dying of cancer and he had lost a great amount of weight and was lying in bed with just his head showing, all shriveled up like a skull with only his eyes bright and alive. And Baker Roshi asked, when will I see you again? When will I see you again? And slowly, Suzuki Roshi poked one bony finger from under the covers and made a circle. He couldn't speak at the time. There was this, that circle. Uh, and for our own lineage, uh, Hakuin Yasutani Roshi, who I mentioned was the teacher of both Aiken Roshi and uh, Philip Kaplow. Yasutani Roshi is our great-grandfather in the Dharma, and he died at the age of 88 on March the 8th, 1973. A few days previously, he had held a Jukai ceremony for Sangha members at the home of his disciple, Yamada Roshi. The afternoon before the ceremony, Yamada Roshi came home to find Yasutani Roshi sitting in his living room. Oh, how are you, Roshi? he asked. Hmm, replied Yasutani Roshi. I'm fine when I'm sitting down, but when I stand up, I feel a little dizzy. I'm fine when I'm sitting down, but when I stand up, I feel a little dizzy. That was his sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. After the Chikai ceremony, 
Yasutani Roshi traveled to Tokyo to stay with his daughter. In the morning, she woke him up for breakfast and went away to get him a face cloth so that he could freshen up. When she returned, he had passed away. So a very tranquil death. And the last one um, is Roshi Philip Kaplow, our grandfather in Dharma. Um, he died at the age of 91 on Friday, May the 7th, 2004. Uh, at that point, um, Sensei and I were back in New Zealand, having recently founded the, the Auckland Zen Centre. Uh, on that morning, he was unable to talk, but he gave his homemade the thumbs up when she got him out of bed. It was a beautiful spring day in Rochester, at the Rochester Zen Centre. In the afternoon, he was taken out in his wheelchair into the back garden. Sangha members and friends gathered around him, and Zen Centre staff came out to do the afternoon chanting, very much, which, you know, very much similar to the chanting we, we've done this evening. There would have been the Prajnaparamita and the Kanzayan, the Shosaimyo. At the end of the chanting service, it was found that Roshi had died. His doctor was nearby and pronounced him dead. He just faded away with the chanting, which was a, which was a great way to go. So we'll um, leave the last words of this Dharma talk uh, to Roshi Kaplow. In his Zen of Living and Dying, he wrote, To die artfully is to die thinking of nothing, wishing for nothing, wanting to understand nothing, clinging to nothing, just fading away like clouds in the sky. Sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of a Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passion. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond the measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of a Buddha. I vow 
to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond the measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of a Buddha. I vow to attain.